Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Beginning at chapter 1, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice. We spoke about this last time that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, from, uh, seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So let's just pause there for a moment. John gives us a seven-fold description of Yeshua here. As he is in the midst of this vision... And he hears a voice. He turns to see the voice. I always found that expression to be interesting. It doesn't say I turned to see the person who spoke, but merely I turned to see the voice. And you can't really see a voice, right? You really see the one that is uttering the voice. But the voice must have been so powerful. And later we read it was like the roar of many waters. So this voice was so all-consuming, so permeating, so present that it was the voice that struck him most significantly until he turned around. Because then when he turns around, he sees the one who is speaking. And the one who is is speaking is described, beginning in verse 14, in seven ways. First, we see the hair on his head. It's white like wool, and it's pure white. This is right out of Daniel chapter 7. We talked about this last week. The Ancient of Days, who is pictured with this white hair. One who is seen in fullness of maturity, in fullness of glory, in fullness of wisdom. And so here is the Holy One of Israel upon the throne in Daniel chapter 7. Here in Revelation, Yeshua is seen as one who is holy like God himself is holy. And he is pure and he is spotless. He is the Holy One of Israel. Remember what the uh, demons would say? They say, if you come to torment us before our time, and they would make reference to him as the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. And so he's pictured, first of all, with respect to that uh, aspect of his character. Remember, the book of Revelation is a book of signs and symbols. 
They are to be interpreted literally, but they signify things. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says that what was given to John was made known to him. But that phrase in the Greek, to make known, is the word it was signified to him. It was made known to him through signs and symbols. And so the signs and symbols need to be understood by what the Hebrew scriptures have already told us about these signs and symbols because 80% of the book of Revelation is really a restatement of what's already found in the Hebrew scriptures. This is one of those images already in the Hebrew scriptures, Daniel 7. We now see the symbol is being applied to Yeshua in the book of Revelation. Now, in addition to that about his hair, we then are introduced to his eyes. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire denotes an imagery of judgment. He's searching the hearts and minds of individuals in judgment. Remember, the book of Revelation is predominantly a book about the outpouring of God's judgment upon the world prior to the coming of the kingdom. Remember, we already mentioned in passing that the scriptures tell us what the purpose of of the tribulation period, this time of trial. And there are basically two major purposes, to rid the world of wickedness and wicked ones. You see this in Isaiah chapter 24. And then to purge the Jewish people of their sin of rejecting Messiah, that they would be ready for him when he returns, they would acknowledge him and thus would enter into the messianic age. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that when the deliverer comes from Zion, he will turn away all ungodliness. That's why Zechariah 13 tells us two-thirds of the entire Jewish nation will go through a period of refinement, like gold and silver is refined in a furnace. Israel will be brought through the furnace so as to come out refined, so as to enter the kingdom as one's honoring and glorifying and worshiping the Messiah of Israel. So his eyes are a flame of fire as he searches the hearts and minds of individuals ready to bring judgment where it is rightly to be brought. And then we're told not only about his eyes, but also about his feet. They were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Here I think there's an imagery of his own suffering. Just as this burnished bronze go through, goes through the fire, so our Messiah went through the fiery furnace to provide salvation for our sin. And when he came out of that fiery furnace, with respect to his resurrection and ascension, he comes in great, with great power and strength and might. And so this furnished or burnished bronze signifies his own suffering for our sin, but coming out solid, stable, powerful, standing firm. And then we not only are introduced to his feet, but then his voice was like the roar of many waters. I drew our attention last week to this passage in Ezekiel, which is really a fascinating passage. Ezekiel chapter 43 And in chapter 43, Ezekiel is giving us an imagery or is giving us an indication or a revelation of the Messianic age. And he tells us about the temple. He tells us about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Tells us about Mount Zion and the arrangement of the tribes around uh, the temple area. And one of the things he also tells us in chapter 43 is about the return of the Shekinah glory. 
Remember, the Shekinah glory appears in Israel at the time of the Exodus and leads the Jewish people out of Egypt by a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And then when the tabernacle is erected in the land of Israel, the Shekinah glory hovers in the, over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And then when Solomon builds the temple, a permanent structure for the presence of God, the Shekinah glory fills the temple. You remember, Solomon falls on his face in worship before God, and the smoke of God's glory then localizes itself into the Holy of Holies. But the Shekinah glory departs from Israel, departs from Israel before the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. And Ezekiel tells us of the departure of the Shekinah glory. You read about it in uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. That section of Ezekiel is called Ich Kavod. The glory has departed. And we're told that because of Israel's sin and the impending judgment by the Babylonians, that the, holy of, uh, that the Shekinah glory and the Holy of Holies lifted up from the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. It exited through the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The Shekinah glory then moved out from the holy of holies and it entered into the court of the men. It moved from the court of the men through the court of the women and went out the beautiful gate, which is the gate that faces east out toward the Mount of Olives. It went out through the beautiful gate and it went out through the gate of the temple Uh, walls around Jerusalem and then it hovered up over the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and then from the top of the Mount of Olives it went into the heavens it's interesting that the scriptures tell us that the way Messiah will return is in the very same manner he will ascend up to the Mount of Olives as he leads Israel in a victory march against the Antichrist from the wilderness where they were protected back into Jerusalem. And then he will rise up and march up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And when he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah says in chapter 14, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. We oftentimes think he comes from the sky to the Mount of Olives. That's not how it happens. He actually ascends up the Mount of Olives. He climbs up the Mount of Olives. Coming from the wilderness, you come from the Dead Sea area, come up the roadway that leads to Jerusalem, and it leads you to the Mount of Olives before you enter Jerusalem. And as he comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, it says that an earthquake will occur which will then split the area in half, north and south, and a valley will open up and Messiah will march into Jerusalem through this valley that has opened. But what's interesting is that that is the way that the Shekinah glory departed. It departed out from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. And how will the Messiah return from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem? And how will the Shekinah glory will return? Wherever the Messiah is, the Shekinah glory is present. The Shekinah glory is the glory of Messiah. So here in Revelation chapter 1, he's seeing Messiah in all of his glory. And the voice of Messiah is like the roar of many waters. Now check this out. Look at Ezekiel chapter 43. And in chapter 43, Ezekiel tells us how the Shekinah glory will return at the coming of the kingdom. And this is what Ezekiel writes. Then he led me to the gate. 
the gate facing east, facing the Mount of Olives. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, coming from the Mount of Olives. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And it's very telling because the Shekinah glory doesn't make any noise. The Shekinah glory is a cloud or it's fire. It doesn't make noise unless the burning of the fire is just like a furnace and, and you're hearing something of that sort, which I suppose is possible. But to speak of the Shekinah glory as having a voice is really an oddity. And I think what's happening here is there's this connection between Messiah coming in his glory and the Shekinah glory that accompanies him. And the sound of Messiah in Revelation chapter 1 is like the sound of many waters. And the sound of the Shekinah glory in Ezekiel 43 is like the sound of many waters. So the Lord in all of his glory with the Shekinah glory, the sound is like with thunderous power and might. I've never been in Niagara Falls, but I can imagine what it sounds like if you're standing next to it and the waters are just rushing over the cliff or some other uh, falls of nature like that. In any case, isn't it kind of interesting seeing this connection between the Shekinah glory and Ezekiel and the statement of how John saw Yeshua in Revelation chapter 1? There's the comparison that Uh, really follows through with the themes that flow throughout the scripture. Then notice not only the sound of his voice, but then we're given, we're told something about his hands. Look what he says. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, if you go down to the end of this section, uh, verse 20, it says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So here we have this, this symbol again. The seven stars are angels. Now, scholars differ on the meaning of this. The word for angel is the word angelos, and it literally means messenger. So there are some that believe, well, we're not to understand angels in the literal sense of angelic spirit beings, but we're supposed to be thinking about the meaning of the word as a messenger. And so many believe, because when you get to Revelation chapter 2, that the angel of the congregation in Ephesus, each one of these congregations has an angel or has an angelos. So if the meaning is messenger, then in the hand of Messiah, in his right hand of Messiah, as he's about to have these letters written to these seven congregations, each one of these congregations has one interpretation, a messenger. So who's the messenger or who delivers the message to the congregation? So some believe it may be a reference to the pastors of these congregations, maybe a reference to the elder in charge of the congregation. The only problem with that is that if we understand Paul rightly, no one congregation has a singular pastor. They have a multitude of elders a plurality of elders. So to think of who is that one messenger, there must have been, if you understand it this way, one individual that stands up who is most responsible for the congregation. That's how some people understand it. 
So it's a reference to an individual in the congregation that the Lord has in his hand and that the message that John is to write is to be delivered to, who in turn would deliver it to the congregation. That's one way of understanding it. I'm not partial to that view. Another way to understand it, which is the way I particularly am led to take this, is that the word angelos here means an angel, a spirit being. I say that because the book of Revelation is filled with references to angels. This is an angelic book. This is the book where the angels get are on the fore. This is a book about them in many ways, about how the Lord um, mediates his ministry and his work and his purposes through the intermediary agency of angels. And so over and over again, angels appear in the book of Revelation. So in my view, I think this is a reference to an angel. And I say that because the book of Hebrews, by the way, tells us that there are ministering angels that are sent to each and every individual believer. Some of you are causing your particular minister of, uh, you know, angel a whole lot of grief. And one day, one day, they'll talk to you about it, you know. On the other hand, Those of you who are causing angels such grief, you are really, you know, they're becoming really good at what they do in being ministering angels because we make it more difficult, you know. So they may look upon us as, I'm glad I got this guy because I need to gain my skills in being a uh, a ministering angel. But the scriptures talk about individuals having such angels, and it appears that the scriptures also talk about... uh, angels, particularly fallen angels, demons, that impact the leadership of nations. You see that in the book of Daniel over and over again. So it's very, I think it's very true that each and every congregation has an angel that is attached, and maybe some, like probably Beth Ariel, we got to send out a multitude to that congregation, you know. But each and every congregation has an angel that's attached to it that is the intermediary agent of God, ultimately, who helps to guide and lead the congregation in the way that the Lord would have it go. Remember, they are in the right hand of God. So whatever the ministering angel to a given congregation is, does, he's doing it at the behest of the one who commands him, the one who has him in the palm of his hand. So that what transpires in any local congregation is what God is determining and is bringing to fruition through the angel who is overseeing and guiding, ministering, and impacting the congregational leaders as well as its members. So um, I understand that these angels are literal angels that are assigned to these congregations whom the Lord has in his right hand. Then the passage goes on to say, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is a double-bladed sword. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, which said that the, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So it may very well be a symbol of the word of God which ushers forth from the mouth of the Lord himself. And the book of Revelation is going to be uttered, and certainly these letters are going to be revelation and direction given from the Lord himself through the angel to 
the congregation to whom the letters were written. So the sword is probably a reference to the word of God. But when you get to Revelation chapter 19, when the Lord comes in all of his glory, it says that among the things that describe him is that a sword is coming out of his mouth. And we're told in the prophets that the sword of God's strength is a sword that meets out judgment upon his enemies. So what I think we're seeing here is we're having an imagery of the Messiah who's coming in all of his glory and he's coming to judge. And he will judge by the word of his mouth. Remember, all the Lord needs to do is say, let this be, and it is. And so his judgment simply comes from a word from him and the judgment falls. And then lastly, it says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 17, which gives us the picture, the event, when Messiah was transfigured in all of his glory. You remember on the Mount of the Transfiguration. It says that when Peter, James, and John saw him, they saw him in all of his glory. And it says that he shined in their midst like the sun shining in its strength. John describes what he saw the very same way Matthew describes what John saw when he was on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Now, Peter was with them as well. And when you read 2 Peter chapter 1, he describes that moment. And three times, I believe it is in that section, he speaks about seeing the majesty of God. And so what we're seeing here is an imagery of Messiah in all of his glory and splendor, shining so brightly, it's like looking at the sun when it is in its fullest capacity of brightness. And that's what John sees. Now, when you see, when he sees that, and you go on to verse 11, when he saw all of that, the Lord in all of his glory, seeing the stars in his hands, hearing his voice like the sound of rushing waters, seeing this sword ready to judge, flames of fire. It says in verse 17 that he fell at his feet as though dead. Now, if the beloved apostle, disciple, the one who walked with Yeshua for the three and a half years, the one who saw him on the Sea of Galilee, who said, drop your nets, your fish, follow me. The one who was a faithful disciple of John the Immerser, John the Baptist, before he was a faithful disciple of, of Yeshua. The one who was of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. The one who sat, sat at the right hand of Messiah and leaned on his chest and spoke and asked him, which one will betray you? The one who was at the cross, all the others fled, remember? He's the only one that stayed when Yeshua was suffering at its highest point. The one who was entrusted with the mother of Yeshua. The one who outran Peter and got to the tomb before Peter did, but was a little too scared to look in and waited for Peter to arrive. And Peter's the first one that goes into the tomb. That one, and the one who saw for the 40 days after the resurrection of Yeshua, the one who was in the upper room with the 120, right, and were praying, who received the Spirit of God, spoke in other languages like all of the apostles did that were present on that occasion. For that 
that one now to see the Lord again and to fall on his face as if he were dead is quite astounding, isn't it? I mean, what does that mean for you and I? If we were to see the Lord in all of his glory, because we didn't have any, we have never had any encounters with him. And yet John had such an intimacy with the Messiah. And yet when the Lord appeared like this, he was, it's like he had a heart attack and he just fell on his face. He said, like a dead man, he was done. And I think it's so interesting that the next thing we read is that he laid his right hand on me. Now, it's really cool to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much now. But here he had the seven stars in his hands. Now he takes the same hand that he had the seven stars, and it's almost like, just wait here one moment. It's like he put them down for a moment. That's how I kind of think about it. He said, I've got another emergency here I need to reach out to. And so the hand that was already busy working, it's like, It's almost like John's more important. And I need now to put my hand on him to revive him and to let him know I'm near to him as one who loves him. You know, so I, you know, I kind of think about that. Whenever uh, we're going through stuff and we think that God doesn't care and we feel like we are dead before God, we're not even a, a concern of his, remember this moment where he took his hand, put it on on John, almost like, let me just put the angels aside for a moment. I don't know, that's how I think about it. And John's real important. I've got to minister to him. And he puts his hand on his shoulder. How many times must have Yeshua done that to John during the three and a half year of ministry? And he simply says, fear not. How many times did John hear those words? Remember when the storm, he's in the boat, and the Lord says, you know, fear not, peace be still, and everything calms down. How many times did he tell people, don't fear, I'm here? And John hears the same voice. It's almost like Mary in the garden, you know. She's so concerned. Where's, where's the master? Where you've taken him? And the Lord simply says, Mary, she knows it's him. It's almost like John just needs to hear two words, fear not, and he'll know it's me, kind of a thing. And so he just reaches out, says, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one, and I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. By the way, in the book of Revelation, death and Hades are always linked together. They're always linked. Hades is like the is the Greek word for she, the Hebrew word Sheol. It means the place of the departed, whether both righteous and unrighteous. Hades is a place of the departed. It has nothing to do with whether it's a good or bad place because it encompasses both. Death, of course, is in the place of hell, which is a segment of Hades. Just as Paradise is a place of bliss. Abraham's bosom is also a compartment of Hades. So Hades is simply the place, the abode of the dead. Death is simply those that are separated from God and therefore alienated from life. But notice what Yeshua says. He has the keys. He can bring out of death life if we acknowledge him as our savior. He's the one who will empty out. You know, it says in the book of Revelation, hell and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. It all gets emptied out at one point and enters into a place, either the righteous are in a place of bliss with the Lord or the unrighteous are in a place of judgment. But it is he who has authority over it all. In other words, all of its inhabitants. And that's every human being that's ever lived, including you and I. And so he has all authority, and therefore, because he has all authority over death and Hades, he can trans- 
transfer us from one place to the other. And therefore, by faith in him, we can be transferred out of death into life. And there we have the promise of eternal life forevermore. The text goes on to say he gives a command to John. And he tells John, looking at verse 19, write therefore, and this is basically the outline of the book of Revelation. He says, write therefore the things you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are yet to take place. The things that he has seen is what we have just read in chapter 1. The Messiah in all of his glory. And he has written that for us. The things that are, are the things that are going on in the seven congregations to whom he is to write. Which we read about in chapters 2 and 3. Those are the things that are. And the things that will be is everything written after chapter 3, chapter 4, all the way to the end of the book. So that's the outline of the book. Chapter 1. The things that he has seen, the revelation of Messiah. Chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, what's going on among the congregants. And the things that will shortly be, which are the things that will lead to the coming of Messiah in chapters 4 through the very end. And John was faithful, and he wrote all of those things down, and we have them contained in this book that we're studying together. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. And we made reference to that. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he's told to write to the angel of the congregation in Ephesus. If you look at chapter 2, verse 8, he's told to write to the angel of the, of the congregation in Smyrna. If you look at chapter 2, verse 12, he's told to write to the angel of the congregation in Pergamum. If you look at chapter 2, verse 18, he's told to write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he's told to write to the angel of the congregation in Sardis. If you look at chapter 3, verse 7, he's told to write to the angel of the congregation in Philadelphia. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, he's told to write to the angel that is in the congregation of Laodicea. So the seven stars in his hands are the angels that are attached to each of those seven congregations that he's to write to. It's interesting that he's told to write to seven. Seven's also a big number in the book of Revelation, used symbolically. And so therefore, while he's writing to these individual churches, there's also something to be said for what is written is meant to go out to all congregations collectively. And so what he writes to these congregations has something to do with the local congregation he's writing to at that time. It also has something to do with congregations anywhere at any time that are experiencing the same sort of things. And so therefore, each one of these congregations is a lesson for us as a congregation too. It's also important to see that each one of these things he writes to these letters to these congregations is relevant to us as individuals. He's going to write, for example, at Ephesus, their big, big issue for Ephesus is they lost their first love. Well, that was true of the congregation in Ephesus in the first century that John's writing to, but that is oftentimes true with congregations throughout history have lost their first love. It's also true for individuals. We oftentimes lose our first love and need to be reminded about restoring that love and how to go about it. 
So what he writes to these churches is important to those locally at the time. It's important for congregations any point in time in history. And it's important for individuals because we need to learn from them as well. But then he says this, and we're going to close here, in which he says, and the seven lampstands are the seven congregations. Now, what is neat to me, among many things that could be said here, is that Messiah is in the midst of these congregations. He is present. Yes, there's an angel dispatched. Yes, there are elders and deacons. Yes, there are individuals assigned responsibility. But at the end of the day, ultimately, in every congregation, Messiah himself is present. He walks amidst the candle sticks, or I should say the lampstands, not candlesticks. They didn't have candles in those days. They're not invented till a later time. But these lampstands, he walks among the lampstands. And therefore, he takes notice of everything that goes on in the congregations that belong to him. So he is present. And therefore, in his presence, he's aware. In his presence, he's protecting. In his presence, he is seeing that it does what he would have it to do. By means of his presence, he's evaluating. By means of his presence, he forewarns. You know, when you look at what he writes to these congregations, there's an admonition, there's an exhortation, there's an encouragement, there's a recognition. But at the end of the day, and what's so cool here is that the Lord is present. Did he not say wherever two or more are gathered, there I am in your midst? And so what Yeshua or what John is saying is in a very symbolic way, the Lord himself walking among these lampstands. Now keep this in mind. The congregations are the lampstands. They are not the lamps that are on the lampstands. The lamp that is on the lampstands is the Lord himself and his glory. That's why Yeshua tells us, let your light shine before others and see your good deeds, Matthew 5, that they may glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, the lampstand is to have a lamp that is lit, seated, or situated upon it. And what he tells each one of these congregations is, while the lampstand can remain standing, its flame can go out. And what's going on in these congregations is warnings so that the flame stays strong. So next week, when we look at the first letter in preparation, and then we'll get into Rosh Hashanah, so we'll take a little bit of a break. But as we'll look at this first letter, it's a very telling letter, because it deals with, in many respects, the most important issue of them all, and that is love for God and love for neighbor. Because he says to this congregation, that's such a wonderful congregation, you have left your first love. And so next week, I want us to think about us individually, but also collectively as a congregation, even as the letter is meant for a congregation. Has the congregation left its first love? And if so, how is it rekindled? And if not, how is that first love manifested. Keeping in mind Yeshua is in our midst and he's in our life 
He knows everything that's happening in your life for good and ill, and he's there with you at every step of the way, even as he's in the midst of these lampstands. For me, that gives me great encouragement. We could just trust him, and we can follow him, and we can be empowered by him, and the light of his glory can emanate from us that can touch the lives of other people. That's what's so exciting about the Lord walking among the lampstands. Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this morning and this day. And even as we look at these words, our prayer, Father, is that we would have a glimpse, indirectly for sure, from John's writing of your glory and of your power. And so, Father, may we too fall on our faces before you. May we humble ourselves before you, that we would walk in your ways, that we would see you for who you are, that it would serve to humble us, but it would also serve to encourage us, that because of your great power and glory, you say, fear not. And then you commission us to do, John's case, to write. In our case, whatever the calling might be. But despite our own limitations, but because of your great power and might and wisdom and strength and being in our midst, we can do your will and we can serve you as you would have us to serve. So, Lord, we commend ourselves to you. We bless your holy name and we thank you for your grace and your mercy and the fact that we need not ever fear because you are in our midst, because you are with us and you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. So we bless you, Lord, and we thank you. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.